We'll be starting in verse 12, or we'll be continuing, I guess would be a better way to say that. As you're getting there, I want to remind you of a story that you probably are familiar with, the story of David and Goliath. If you compare the two people in the story of David and Goliath, I think you would be hard-pressed to find a greater contrast. You have David, a shepherd boy, uh, who can't even fit into the armor that Saul has offered him to fight this massive giant. And then you have Goliath, a professional soldier, a a brutish man with uh, long dragon-scale armor with a heavy spear uh, and a massive warrior who spent his life fighting battles. Goliath well-equipped, David with just a slingshot. Perhaps you have had your own David and Goliath moments. You against someone with greater strength or greater ability. So I had my own David and Goliath moments. So during my time in the army, we would do this thing called combatives. And in combative, you would, uh, essentially it's like wrestling, but you would fight each other. And we would get our platoons together, and we would get a pit in the middle, and we would wrestle, right? We would fight, and whatever platoon did, won the most matches was the winner. And so eventually, you know, we'd have everybody go through, and then the platoon sergeants would get in. Now, I will tell you, in my platoon, I was about another 40 pounds lighter than this, and the man that I was against was like 6'5", maybe 250, 280. I mean, he was a monster of a man. I'm bald because he's probably taking testosterone, right? Uh, he just, just a massive man. And we got into this pit to fight, right? And of course, I have to uphold my platoon's honor, and he's going to hold his platoon's honor. So I take a running leap at this man, and I grab him. I climb around behind him, get on his shoulders, and I'm like trying to choke him out. And he just grabs me, throws me on the ground, and just squishes me, right? <laughs> what we... What we that I would not have won no matter how many efforts I put into it. So if you were to choose your champion, and you saw us both get into the pit together, who would you choose? I'm going to give you a hint. Not me. Right? So even after all my efforts, he was the champion because he was bigger, he was greater, he had more ability. The point of this story is to direct your attention to choosing a champion. So if you were to pick... Between David and Goliath, you would typically choose Goliath. If you were to pick between me and that monster of a platoon sergeant, you would pick him. And what Peter does in this sermon is point to Christ as the better champion, the conqueror, the one that we should trust in. So let's read what he wrote, starting in verse 12. Now, remember the scene before we get going too far. He had just healed a lame man in the name of Jesus. Jesus uh, was the name that, that Peter declared has healed this man. And he was walking and leaping and praising God. And it grew a crowd. And they were at Solomon's colonnade where there was a little bit of a platform. And he began to preach. And this is what we see starting in verse 12. So they all gathered. And when Peter saw this, he addressed the people. Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? 
The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murderer released to you. Listen to this, guys. You killed the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him his, this perfect health, in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Let's pray. God, you are all-powerful. You lack no power. And as we place our trust in you this morning, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us for the task at hand, that we would be able to, to hear the word preached, that we would be able to uh, listen to what your word has to say to our hearts today. Father, don't let anyone in this room leave unchanged by your word. Father, we pray that your spirit would guide us through the text, that we would understand more clearly who you are, and that we would be strengthened, and we would be joyful. Father, we would like to lift up uh, the churches in China that are suffering under massive oppression, where people are being killed just for saying the name of Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would uh, be with those saints as they, they pray and they worship, as you would protect them uh, and strengthen the church there. Father, we ask all these things in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen. So Peter really starts his sermon off uh, pretty, pretty hard, doesn't he? He says, you guys killed the source of life. He indicts them. He charges them with a crime. He says, you Jews killed the Messiah, the holy righteous one. Yet God raised him up for this purpose. And then, he's, then at the end, he goes on and says, and we can be restored only through faith in him. So, as I read this, I notice that there's a, a, something that we can take from this. And it's, and it's this. Listen to this sentence. We kill the source of life when we choose a murderer over Jesus. Yet we can be restored through faith in his name. That's the practical application from this text. I'm giving it to you ahead of time so you're ready. We kill the source of life. You kill the source of life. When you choose a murderer over Jesus, yet you can be restored through his name. The whole point of this message is about choosing a champion, choosing the champion that you will serve under. And so in verses 13 through 15, we see the murdering of the source of life. Uh, Peter begins to describe two champions. So as you read this, you'll notice that Peter is describing the champion that you should follow, and then he breaks down the champion that the Jews had chosen. So in verse 13, the first thing he does is he begins with a, uh, a treatise on who God is. And he starts with this in verse 13. It would be helpful if I was there in my Bible. 
the God of Abraham. Think about that for a minute. If you were a Jew and you heard that, word, that name, Abraham, what would you think? You would think of a womb that was closed, that was now opened in order to produce the tribe of Israel. Many nations came from Abraham, and so there was a womb that was closed. In fact, death is kind of the language used, that her womb was dead, yet God made it alive. And then he goes on and he says, the God of Isaac. Do you remember that story? Do you remember the story of Isaac, who was willing to sacrifice his one son, Jacob, in order, even though he trusted in God enough to do that? And then we have the God of Jacob. Jacob, of course, is also known as Israel. He is the, the, the father of this nation. And so we have the birth of a nation. As Peter is preaching, he is calling to, to recognition life and what life looks like. And then he goes on and he says, he says, the God of our ancestors. So this God... This God, the triune God, the God of Abraham, who brought life, the God of Isaac, who trusted in God even enough to sacrifice his own son, and the God of Jacob, who birthed this nation, he is the God of our Jewish ancestors, the one that you believe in, or at least say you believe in. He goes on and he says this in verse 13, has glorified his servant Jesus. This God, the triune God, the God of our ancestors, has glorified Jesus. Now remember, at Pentecost, we have a similar saying, right? He begins to build the case for Jesus Christ being glorified, which means that he was taken up and he's seated at the right hand of, of God the Father, and he is judging the living and the dead. He is in control. He is the ruler. But he uses a unique term here. So as you look at this, you have the word servant. Now, in our English Bibles, it's kind of hard to understand the significance of this word. And this word uh, is often used, for, or it has been used, it's a unique word for servant, and it's used in Isaiah 52, 13. The, the Greek version of the Old Testament was often what the apostles would use. So he says, see my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Peter is once again referring to Old Testament prophecy to make his case. Over and over again, we see this pattern with Peter. He's not just saying, oh, this is a brand new thing that no one could have ever imagined. No, he said, this is exactly what God has promised. He says he is glorified. And, and glorified in what way? Well, God raised him from the grave and placed him at his right hand. Then verse 14, we have a depiction of who this Jesus is. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one. Jesus is being described here as the holy and righteous one. In Mark 1, 24, the demons declare that Jesus is the holy one. Isn't that interesting? So as we begin to meditate on who Christ is, he is holy. What does holy mean? Well, he is set apart by God. There's no mixture of error in him. He's pure. There's no sin within him. 
Right? That's the goal of the people of Israel, were to be holy, to be set apart. But Jesus fulfills. He's also the righteous one. That means that he is right, he is just, that there is no injustice in him. What God does through Jesus is right, good, and true. And in verse 15, we have the source of life. He's called the source of life. Now, this is an interesting word that can be translated a couple different ways. Source is one way. Ruler of life is another way. Sometimes champion is used here. Uh, or fountainhead of life. Or, because I was a scout, the pioneer or the, um, the front runner or the forerunner the, the scout, if you will, of life. He is the point man of life. Think about that for a minute. This is the source of life. Jesus Christ, we know, um, all things were created through him, by him, and for him. Right? So this is what Peter is talking about, this amazing champion, this Jesus. But then we have the indictment. Peter points who the Jews put their faith in by rejecting Jesus. Look at verse 13 again with me. He says, You whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. Think about this. this the promised servant of God was handed over to Pilate, a Gentile ruler, someone that they did not like. Someone that they would not want to associate with. They do not want the Romans to continue to rule them because the Romans were harsher than what they thought they could have. He was denied by the nation of Israel. The fact that he was denied, the Messiah, the sent one, the one that God sent to them, they denied him. They should have embraced him, but they denied him. Talk about a massive embarrassment for the people of Israel. And even more, Pilate had decided to release him. See the tension here? Pilate was going to let him go. Instead, the Jews said what? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Yet the people pushed back against Pilate. Jesus is the source of this miracle. The God of their ancestors had determined this. So he says, you denied him before Pilate. And then we have a repetition of the guilt. Verse 14, he says, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. The people demanded for a murderer, Barabbas, that revolutionary, the, the insurrectionist, and a murderer. Think about this for a minute. How low do you have to be to give the death penalty to someone innocent and free a murderer? Can you imagine the outcry if in our nation if that was what would happen? If we if we went to the we grabbed someone who was completely innocent from of, of any crime and put them in the and gave them the death penalty and took a, someone who was convicted for the death penalty and took them out and let them free? That would, be, that would be outrageous. We would have riots in the streets over that because that would be unjust. But that is what happened. We have this major contrast in themes, right? We have the holy and the righteous versus an un, or a known murderer and insurrectionist. Consider that for a minute. 
You cannot find a better contrast between the two options. And then the source of life was killed. Look at verse 15. You killed the source of life. You killed him, yet God raised him from the dead. It's amazing that their wickedness does not thwart God's plan, only accomplishes it. And then he says this, he says, we, the apostles, the disciples, are witnesses to this. They're witnesses both to the killing and to the guilt of the Jews and to the raising of Jesus from the grave. So when Peter says we witness this, he's saying we're witnesses to Jesus and we're witnesses to your guilt. And the witness theme continues throughout Acts. We've talked about this quite a bit. So I can imagine the scene, and and perhaps you can too, the sense of guilt and feeling of dread at what Peter was saying. He says, you deny the source of life, the promised one, and just blow after blow after blow is hitting the heart with his words. I mean, think about that for a minute. If If someone came up here and began to indict you for something that you failed to do or something you did, how would you feel? You'd be cut to the heart. Maybe you might be feeling a little bit of sense of relief right now. At least I wasn't alive back then, and I didn't do it myself. Right? You might be thinking, man, I'm so glad that was 2,000-something years ago, because otherwise I know I'd be guilty of falling into the same trap. So while it's true that, that we personally did not crucify Christ, He did go to the cross for sinners like you and me. And our sin guilt is what put him there. The guilt and the sin that we commit is what put Christ there. But I don't want to look at an aspect of, or I want to look at an aspect of this that we don't always consider. How when we sin, we are putting to death the source of life and choosing a murderer. When you sin, you are putting Christ to death and choosing the murderer over and over and over again. And how do, why do I say that? Well, I'll tell you. John 8, 44, Satan is a murderer. John 8, 44 says this, You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature, because he is a liar and the father of lies. We know that all sin is deception. It offers something that it ultimately won't deliver. A lie promises to deliver you from trouble. That trouble could be an awkward situation, could be conflict with another person. Yet, what does, it, what does a lie do? It ensnares you, doesn't it? Because once you tell a lie once, you're going to have to continue to tell lie after lie after lie after lie. And eventually you get confused to which lies you've told. You keep lying and it becomes a web that captures you. Have you ever watched a a fly get caught in a spider's web? If you ever sit there and watch a fly and it gets caught in in a spider's web, what does it typically immediately start to do? Yeah, starts to fight, right? Starts to shake, tries to move around. And what happens? It gets more and more ensnared. 
And that's what happens with us. The more it struggles, the more stuck it gets. And that is sin. The more we struggle, the more we sin to get out of more sin, we become more ensnared. It devalues Christ and promises and embraces the lie. When we sin, we are choosing a murderer over Jesus. I want you to consider that with me. Because I think sometimes we think, oh, that was just a little white lie, or, or that was innocent, or that wasn't a big deal. But the reality is, when we sin, we are choosing a murderer over Jesus. I like how Hebrews 10.29 puts it. It says, how much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. That's a heavy indictment. I like how Pastor John Piper puts it. He says, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. Is that not what sin does? Sin holds out a promise of happiness. If you just do this thing, you'll feel better. If you do this thing, you'll get out of trouble. If you do this thing, you will be happy. So just like how we often will choose death instead of the source of life, the Jewish people had chosen death instead of life. And Peter begins to offer the solution, because it would be terrible to be stuck there, wouldn't it? We have a solution, life-giving faith. Verse 16 through 18, talks about this life-giving faith. So turn to verse 16 with me. It says, By faith in his name, his name had made this man strong, whom you see and know, so that so the faith that comes through Jesus has given his, this perfect health in front of all of you. Faith in the name of the life-bringer is what healed this man. It made him strong. It did more than just help him to walk. It made him strong. In fact, he says, it's obvious. Just look at what happened. He says, you can't deny this. It's happened right in front of you. So faith through Jesus has given this man perfect health, which is an interesting use of that word. Why would he say perfect health? Plainly seen before all of us. If you remember, the lame man was unable to enter into the, the temple area. He had to stay outside because he was blemished. He was not perfect in health. And so he was restricted from the worship of God. And it wasn't until Peter and John came along and gave faith in his name, in the name of Christ, that he was able to enter into the temple area. What a powerful picture of, of, um, of the God. In verse 17 through 18, we see this as well, that we may sin in ignorance, but the solution is the same. In verse 17, Peter goes on and he kind of lightens the blow a little bit. Look at verse 17 with me. And it says, And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your leaders did also, or also did. Think about that for a minute. He says, I know you guys were acting in ignorance, but does that remove the consequences? Does that remove the, the sin on them? No, they're still guilty. 
Ignorance is no excuse. So when you see these words, and now, in verse 17, it's a transition to a new aspect of the speech. So as you read through Scripture, you're going to start noticing little transition words like therefore, and we always ask, what is it therefore? But this word, and now, is a transition to another part of the speech, and this is where our hope is. He says, I know you acted in ignorance just like the leaders. And Peter has a, a strong um, background for saying this. Luke 23, 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. So as Christ was being crucified, he says, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. They're still guilty. That's why he asked for their forgiveness. But ultimately, they were ignorant. And Peter points to the necessity of Christ's suffering and death. So out of something sinful and wicked, something great happens. So just as Joseph says in Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, this is what's happening here in verse 18. It says, in this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. So the guilt of their actions, the guilt of the Israelites is not removed, but he recognizes that they lack a full understanding of what they were doing. So this applies to us, that even if we sin in our ignorance, God uses it for our ultimate good, even as we experience the consequences. Uh, perhaps when we come to our senses and repent of that sin, we will hate sin more because of how in bondage we were to it. Maybe you've had this experience. Have you ever um, watched a, uh, an advertisement and been really convinced that that thing on the advertisement was going to help you? Like you were convinced that this was going to make your white clothes really white. Like, I mean, you saw the video. In one video, it was dirty, and they, they, they washed it, and then it came out clean. Amazing. You know, you're committed. You're like, this is what's going to happen. Right? And so all this advertisement tells you that the brand that you're using is no good. And you're like, man, I got that brand in my, my washer right now. So you go, you go to the store. Usually my wife goes to the store, so that's why we haven't been eating this week. Uh, we go to the store, and we buy the detergent that we saw on the advertisement. We bring it home. We place it in our washer. We put our dirty clothes in there, and we pull it out, and it looks exactly the same, don't we? We get, oh, man. Does that not make you hate advertisements even more? Because that's what it does to me. I get really annoyed. In fact, my wife knows I get on a, on a, a pet peeve about advertisements. Because the goal of an advertisement is to make you discontent with something in order to buy their product. Right? They're not just showing the superiority. They want to make you discontent. And so as we think about this subject, when we sin, when we fall prey to false advertising, to fake news... When we fall prey to it, we begin to hate it even more. And so when you fall prey to sin, when you choose the easy way, the easy wrong over the hard right, you begin to recognize how useless sin is. But sometimes you become more in bondage to it. And so the hope is that this will teach us to no longer fall prey to it, to actually hate sin. 
In fact, Christ is glorified even in our sin. Verse 18 says that in this way God fulfilled what he had predicted through the prophets. So through the ignorance of the leaders, God fulfilled or completed what he had planned. Now, I don't like the word predicted here because I think it's a, a poor sense. The better sense is prophesied or announced beforehand. Uh, the LSB, among others, has to announce openly what is to happen in the future or to foretell or to predict. <clears throat> so if you look at verse 18, it says, In this way, God fulfilled what he had announced beforehand. He didn't predict it. He announced it, right? He determined it. God planned for Christ, the Messiah, to suffer. And Christ's suffering was more evidence of his fulfilling of prophecy. Remember the confusion the disciples and the apostles had with the crucifixion. <clears throat> they didn't understand that the Messiah was a suffering servant, as Isaiah points out. They thought that he was going to come and conquer, that it was going to be the end immediately, and that they would rule uh, with the Jewish people. But what Christ points out is that they are going to suffer first. And next week we're going to see the command to repent and turn back for the forgiveness of sins. The reality of this part of Peter's message is that Jesus is elevated, raised up, so that in him we can have forgiveness of sins. To do that, we have to have faith in his name. Man, that song, Love Lifted Me, and then Gary choosing to say, Christ Lifted Me. Do you believe that? Do you see Christ in that way? Or is he just an add-on to your already busy life? Is he just something that you do to, to kind of get it out of the way and move on? It's kind of like brushing your teeth. Don't even think about it anymore. Brush your teeth, move on with your day. Unless you're my kids and they forget. And then they have stinky breath and we can't move on. Peter's sermon points to the necessity of trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Uh, Peter's going to end this sermon in Acts uh, two or sorry three twenty six. At the very end of this passage, it says that God raised up His servant and sent Him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. So, how do you turn from sin? I mean, isn't that the age old question? How do you turn away? From wickedness. Well, it's only by seeing Christ as holy, as righteous, as the servant, as the one that is lifted up, as the source of life. If you see Christ as a source of life and sin as poison, you're going to begin to shift from this mindset of whatever makes you happy. It's kind of, I kind of joke that instead of praying the Lord's Prayer, um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy will be done. We always like to say, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? We want to take our will. And that's what sin does. It tries to supplant Christ's will with our will. So while the Jews denied and killed Christ, preferring a murderer to him, they can still be saved through his name, through trusting in his name. Imagine that for a minute that you can still be saved even if you've been choosing a murderer over the source of life. What an amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. 
We have the same situation playing out in our hearts today. We have a choice uh, where we prefer sin and its author, Satan, or where we choose to trust in Christ to give us the salvation that we need. The conclusion is this, that we kill the source of life when we choose a murderer over Jesus. Yet we can be restored through faith in his name. So how are you cultivating faith in the risen Christ? Are you seeing him in his glory as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, as the suffering servant? Do you see him as the holy and righteous one? Do you see him as the source or author of life? The question I want to leave with you is what sin is entangling or enticing you? And do you fight it by looking at Christ as the sole source of life? Or are you giving in to the false promises that sin is offering you? Ultimately, the question is this. What champion are you trusting in? Are you trusting in an easy or quick fix? Or are you placing your hope in the source of life? Or are you choosing death? That's the question I want to leave with you. As we close, Father, as we open up your word, we're reminded about how little we know of you. We are swimming in a deep ocean of who you are, that you are the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, that you are I am, that you were before the foundations of the earth, that you were before time began. Yet you chose to reveal yourself through your dear son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we can put our hope and our trust in his name alone. For the forgiveness of our sins. But not only that, but for happiness, for joy, for celebration. Lord, as we place our hope in the forerunner, who is Christ. Lord, I pray that all of us would see sin for what it truly is death, and that we would choose the source of life over death every single time. We ask these things in the the beautiful name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.